This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chief Deputy of Pinal County and the author of Interceptors, The Untold Fight Against Mexican Cartels, Matthew Thomas. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into law enforcement, his childhood experience with gangs, violence on the Mexican border, human trafficking, the illicit drug trade, his proactive stance on drug prohibition, defensive tactics, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Matthew Thomas. Enjoy. Well, Matthew, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolutely, man. It's great to join you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? (laughs) I am in a little state called Arizona, um, and uh, I'm in Pinal County, Arizona, which is basically right in between Phoenix and Tucson. So if you travel from one city to the other, you go right through our county. Beautiful. Well, we were connected by Brandon Griffin. So before we start your journey, tell me how you know Brandon. So Brandon and I know each other through the tactical side of of the cop world. And uh, I've been a member of our SWAT team for 18 years before I moved into this position. And uh, I was also part of our state um, association for tactical officers. And that's where I started uh, getting introduced to tactical teams around the state. That's where I met Brandon. And then we also have a friend in in common who uh, teaches combatives, and uh, we were both taking combatives courses through that friend, and, and we met, kind of met there and the tactical realm all at the same time. Beautiful. Are you able to name who the combative combative teachers is? Yeah, it's uh, Rigo Durazo with uh, TACFLOW. Beautiful. All right. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. So I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and my mom and dad at the time lived in uh, what is now referred to as South Phoenix, along with my my grandparents lived in the area as well. Uh, Grew up there and all the way through my freshman year of high school was in Phoenix. And then uh, it was getting a little bit rough in that area. Some of my friends were getting in trouble. There was a lot of gang influence. Uh, We were in government subsidized housing. And so my mom decided it was time to move out of that area. And so we moved out to a more rural area called Queen Creek, which was uh, essentially farming area. And that's where I finished out high school. Um, And that was that. So that took me from the inner city to the rural area of farming. Um, And then I got involved in sports in high school, 
um, met my now wife in high school. We were not high school sweethearts. She actually, uh, I don't think she liked me in high school. Uh, <laughs> it was after high school that I was able to trick her into, uh, into becoming my girlfriend and eventually my wife. Um, and so it was only, I was 19 when, uh, when her and I, uh, got together and, and, uh, she was pregnant with our kid. We weren't married yet. And so I decided it is time to get a job and a, a steady job. Right. And so I was looking at government work. I had always been attracted to the law enforcement world, the military world. My grandparents were both world war II vets. And so, um, yeah, we, uh, we started our family and I, I don't have any brothers or sisters. I was an only child. Um, and so my dad, he bounced and, uh, him and my mom got divorced when I was probably about four or five. And a couple of years after that, um, my mom met a new gentleman who became my stepdad. And that was essentially who my, my father figure was, uh, along with my grandpa. Like my grandpa was probably my strongest father figure. I spent a lot of time with him. Um, and then, uh, you know, went through my school years, got with my wife, got married, uh, went to work here at the sheriff's office at the age of 20. So we had a brand new baby. Uh, we were newly together, uh, and I started a new career and we did all of that at the same time. So I'm coming up on my 30th year with the, uh, sheriff's office and also coming up on my 30 year anniversary of being married to my wife. So, uh, she has, she's stuck with me because it's hard for wives to stick with husbands through this career. Um, and we now have three children together. We have, uh, the, the one that was, uh, my daughter who was born when I was 20 and we have another 21 year old and a 14 year old boy. Brilliant. Well, I can relate to the 14 year old boy. I got a 15 year old boy. So that's uh, a, it's a ride in itself. (laughs) So going all the way back to grandparents initially, one of the voices that sadly we've almost completely lost is the voice of the World War II generation. Now here we are, you know, many of us have worn uniform through our careers. Um, and the mental health conversation is obviously a big part of what we do as well. There is a real fallacy that I bought into 100% until very recently that the World War II generation, they were great. They just went to war. They came back. They rolled up their sleeves and they made America great. The more I unpack these conversations, the more I realize that, no, that's not the case. A lot of these men and women struggle when they came back, as you would when you were out killing, you know, in, and defending your country. So did you have any insight into any of the the kind of ripple effect of your grandparents' service? I did. Um, I wouldn't say with my grandma so much because she was very good at keeping everything good, if that makes sense. Um and of course, as a kid growing up, I, I wouldn't know what to attribute this to, but I can tell you that I watched, I watched my grandpa essentially drink himself to death. Um, and so he drank a lot. Um, and again, you know, as a kid growing up, it's just what it's just grandpa. Um, you don't associate it with his wartime. He wouldn't talk about, um, you know, the wartime stuff. It was never really conversation. And even when he had his friends around from World War II, never really talked about it. Um, but I watched him every night, he would finish about a fifth of whiskey. Um, and you know, that, that was, that was probably at least three or four times a, uh, a week. Um, and even if he wasn't finishing the whiskey, he was still drinking pretty good each night. 
And so looking back, I, I think a lot of that is probably attributed to the, the wartime stuff. Now, when you look back at your early life, I mean, you had a father that bounced, as you said, you know, were there any elements? And the reason I ask this is this, in the mental health conversation in the uniform professions, we really focus on, oh, it was that call that you saw. It was that incident at the border. James, it was that kid that was killed. And absolutely, is that a compounding element? Of course. But there's no conversation of what happened to you before you ever put a uniform on in the first place. So when you look back at your early life, were there any compounding factors prior to your service? Uh, I, you know, probably... Just the area I, I grew up in and how I grew up, I had a lot of interaction with law enforcement because it was a high crime area. And it wasn't negative necessarily, negative interaction. Um, but I watched um, I watched friends get stabbed, um, shot, and, um, you know, there was violence. Uh, one of my one of my uncles is, you know, a, a con himself. He, his whole life he's been in and out of prison. And so I watched him, uh, you know, enact violence on other people. Um, and so I think I had a sense growing up, I had a sense of, of helping the, uh, the people that are victimized or, or helping those that are the underdogs or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And uh, another piece of, of that, I think for me, was that I was, I was a white kid in a pretty much predominantly Mexican neighborhood and uh, Mexican area. So I had almost all Mexican friends, a few black friends, and I was really, I mean, there was one or two other white kids that I remember growing up. And so you deal with that as well, because uh, whether people want to admit it or not, racism is across all races. <laughs> like uh, I, I know there's this fallacy that that white people somehow control racism um but i'm telling you some of the some of the racism i ran into as a white guy from other races was real heavy and so i think that played into it too just the whole you know not being a victim and wanting to stand up for others and that that played into me being drawn to this field so with the middle school and high school lens whether it was the the urban south phoenix setting or even when you went into the rural setting 30 years ago what were you seeing we're going to talk obviously about a lot of the violence and, and things that happen on the bar the border now what right. was your perspective as a young teen with that area back then 30 years ago oh back then it was uh completely different because back then it was really just people who would come over to uh look for a better life and they were coming here by different means they were behaving differently when they got here um, and so even from being in the areas that I grew up in and around that culture, what I know is that when when an immigrant would come into the U.S. from Mexico, um, they wanted to be off the radar. Um, they weren't trying to cause any trouble. They definitely weren't breaking laws other than the illegal immigration piece, but they weren't smuggling drugs. They weren't doing that kind of stuff. Um, they were very family oriented. And and as some of them would become citizens, I would say they're more patriotic than some of our U.S. born citizens. Um, so they they are fully bought in back then um, and they changed their way of life to assimilate into our culture rather than demanding that everybody change for them. So big differences there. 
Um, obviously, the the drugs of choice were were different back then as well. So uh, you didn't see a lot of what you're seeing now. Thirty years ago, it was like marijuana and cocaine, right? And and uh, that was kind of the the thing. And then, of course, heroin always poked its dirty head out, but um, it was really it seemed like a simpler time. And then problems were solved face to face. So. <laughs> You know, there wasn't social media stuff. There wasn't keyboard warriors. There wasn't all that. There was there was much more face to face interaction. So I think people socially um, just worked better together. And if they had issues, they had to work it out face to face because there was no other real way to either express yourself or to, uh, you know, converse with other people. Um, And the violence back then, uh, obviously, there's always been violence. But when a gun got brought out back then, it was like, that's really, really serious. Like something really serious has happened. Typically speaking, it was, you know, fist to fist, hand to hand. Um, if a knife came out, that was pretty serious. But then if guns came out, that was really rare and very, very serious um, compared to today where just it's, it's you know, guns are the thing. They're everywhere. And that's people will pull out a gun faster than they will fight you, you know, fist to fist. Um, so. Those are all some of the big differences that that I see. Well, thank you for that. I want to get to some, you know, what you've seen over the last three decades. But before we kind of get away from your childhood, you mentioned about playing sports. You ended up in a very physical profession. What were you playing when you were in school age? Um, so growing up in elementary school age, it was mainly soccer. Soccer was was the the biggest sport for me. And then we played some street ball, which was basically baseball in the street and kind of a, a hybrid form of baseball. Um, but believe it or not, one of the the things that I had the most fun at, and it's not really an official sport that I know of, but we had orange orchards uh, by our houses. And so we would go over to the orange orchards, we would divide up teams, and uh, we would have an orchard war. And so the teams would basically pick oranges and have your supply of oranges, and we would throw them as hard as we could at each other uh, to try and knock out the other team members. And so you would run through the orchard on your team, running to try and find the other team and try and hit them with a nice hard orange. Uh, that was one of the the most played games I had, like in the elementary school years next to soccer. And then as I moved into high school, uh, it became football and basketball were my my two things. I've never heard of an Arizona snowball fight before, but now I know what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and oranges hurt, man. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I can imagine. So in your, in your school age, what were you thinking about regarding uh, profession? What were you dreaming of becoming? Well, I think we all, right, as kids, we all dream of becoming the next big uh, sports hero, right? We're going we're gonna to be a major league baseball player or we're going to play on a uh, professional soccer team or something to that effect. So I, I remember, you know, thinking those same things as you're growing up. Um, and then as you get into high school, you quickly realize that that field is flooded and, uh, you know, you're you're fighting a lot of good people to get a spot like that. And so I think as I as I started to move into my teens and especially in high school, I was really focused on sports. I liked sports. I liked the competitiveness. And uh, um, even as I moved into my senior year, you know, you, you have to start picking things, right? That your teachers want you to know what you're going to next and they start talking to you. And uh, I kept looking at the sports, uh, like sports therapy, physical therapy, that kind of stuff. And that was kind of where I thought I was going to go. Um, and uh, that all 
kind of quickly changed right after high school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I heard you mention on another podcast, and I wish I could remember it now. It was something zero something. It was two Australian hosts. um, Mm -hmm. But you talked about your first interaction with law enforcement was an arrest. So talk to me about that incident and then walk me through how you were able to overcome that. Because I think one of the problems in our professions, and I had this firsthand in my very first hiring experience, is some agencies act like the only people that are ever going to be applicable are choir boys. And the reality is people that run towards fires and bullets are probably have gone and done some shady shit earlier in their life. So walk me through that. Yeah, and uh, you're absolutely right. And, and now it, it's funny just to uh, just to digress for a quick minute. The position I'm in now where I'm hiring people, I tend to look more for people with my type of background. I want some dents and dings, and I want them to have been through some life experience uh, because I just think they deal with situations better. Um, but yeah, for me personally, again, growing up in a high crime area, um, the gang cops were always in our neighborhood because we had gang stuff going on. They would always stop us. So we would be playing street ball or walking down the street or whatever. They'd stop us. They, you'd have to get on your knees, cross your ankles, cross your head, hand behind your head uh, while they talk to you. And, and uh, you would that would be your position while the cops would talk to you. Um, but they were always very respectful and uh, they they were really cool with us. They They would joke with you. They knew about your family. You know, they'd be like, hey, Matt, does your mom know this or know that? You know, don't make us go over and tell Mary that you're doing this. So they knew your family. They knew the neighborhood. Um, and so I always appreciated that interaction and how they treated us. Um, and it was always viewed, even uh, amongst my friends who became gangsters, it wasn't like a, it was kind of an us versus them. But then it wasn't. It was there was that respect level there that, hey, they're just doing a job and, you know, we're we're doing this and they're doing that. They're trying to catch us at what we do and we're trying to get away with it. Um, And so there was always a respect level there. And I always appreciated that as well. And then uh, moving into my teens, I got I got in a little trouble and, uh, um, you know, got got arrested. But again, the the cops treated me well. And ultimately, uh, they. They basically thought I was guilty of this and I I wasn't. And of course, everybody says they're not right. But it, it literally was not like I was not the guy they were looking for. They thought I was the guy they were looking for. So I get released and I'm good to go. Um, but all of those experiences dealing with the, the, the interactions with the cops and even some of the guys I've talked to that have had bad interactions with cops who now want to be law enforcement. I think that forms you and it better prepares you because in this career, you're going to be doing those exact same things that you went through. And you're going to remember, you know, this cop was a complete dick to me. And this is why I'm not going to be that guy. Right. And so you learn things that you don't want to do to other people. Uh, You learn the things that you appreciated about those law enforcement officers. And I think that just makes you a better, well-rounded cop, because I think a choir boy, just a vanilla never seen anything in their life cop struggles a little bit with that because they they tend to see everything more black and white and it's not it's a very gray world and we have to maneuver through all that so i think it all helps because i've had people on here that became seals that you know got into some pretty amazing professions and sometimes they had to work very hard to overcome some of the legal challenges 
I heard you talking with these guys about the polygraph, and it's funny because you were you were referring to some of these maniacs that were administering in polygraphs, and I've had them. You walk in, and then you get this fucking ten minute monologue on how they used to work. You know, for you didn't insert any bullshit here. So, oh, I used to, you know, I worked for JFK, and I figured out who was sleeping with Marilyn. Monroe and Marilyn Manson at the same time. And they're like, oh God, here we go. And then I did, I think, three polygraphs to work for four fire departments. And you, after a while, you realize ultimately it's smoke and mirrors bullshit to get you to confess. This is what we're right. looking at. So, one thing as we progress through this podcast, I realized touching on what I mentioned a minute ago is what we do very poorly is address anything that is brought into the profession. So one of the things I've put to some of the people that are in, you know, leadership positions in in departments is the background check ultimately tells you if I'm a good person or not. Right. So the budget is already there for the polygraphs, which is, you know, like I said, a circus act ultimately. And the psych tests, which you talk to most people in the psychology world, those psych tests are ridiculed and they're appalling to most of them because they just don't work. Take that money and actually give these people coming into the profession while they're going through the academy and probation, let's say five counseling sessions. So they have an opportunity to not only offload some of the stuff, they were in a gang, they, you know, whatever it was, but also develop a rapport. So right from day one, they have a relationship with someone that they can reach out to way, way before they ever get to crisis. And the budget would be exactly the same. I don't, I don't dislike that idea. Um, for us, Yes, the polygraphs uh, can be problematic. Uh, the problem is we have we have a, a regulatory board which requires our people to take polygraphs. So to become a deputy, you have to take a polygraph to get your certification. Um, you're going to have to take that polygraph. And uh, where we started changing things is we saw that some of our people who are who are be sent they would be sent to take a polygraph. And they would come back and tell us how confrontational it was. And we're like, well, we're not looking for confrontation. We just want affirmation that you're good to go. Like, we we got your background investigation. We got the answers to the questions. This is just follow-up to ensure that you're not way off the charts on any of the stuff you've answered already. We're not looking for any, uh, you know, polygrapher to, like, solve the crime of the century. So we started sending our own people to become certified in doing polygraphs so that we held control of them. And, and we kind of tell them, we're, we just, these are the points we have to uh, absolutely hit. So we're going to hit those. And other than that, we were really not interested in, you know, trying to get them to confess that, that they looked at porn when they were, you know, 10 years old or some shit. Um, but I agree that we do a horrible job of kind of getting people into this career prepared to see what they're about to see and experience what they're about to experience. So again, I like the idea because getting them breaking through the stigma of counseling right up front would be great so that they're already conditioned to, Oh, this is just a normal thing. And this is what we do. Uh, that would be fantastic. And then getting them to understand that um, we also want them to decompress and get rid of the stuff because that's the thing with us, right? We, we see all this crap and we just hold it in. And we just keep piling it on, piling it on, and we think we're fine. And uh, you, you know, you figure out at some point that you're not fine as you have loaded your closet full of shit, and it starts bursting at the seams. Um, and hopefully, we're doing a better job now 
of addressing that, but we're still way off the mark to to have our people good from the start to the finish. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's the thing with that that the budgets are there, and I would I would really pose the question in the whole research world: how much validity is there really in a polygraph, or is that something that can ultimately be removed from the process, which would free you guys up to use that money more proactively? Well, and I, I would even argue. Uh, because again, in this position, I get to see it. I would even argue the fact that we know the long-term effects of stress. We know the long-term effects it has on your health, uh, it has on your mental well-being, that those costs in the long run would far outweigh the initial investment anyway. So even without cutting out anything that we're doing now, we could address those issues if we look at it like that. Rather than spend the money on the back end, and those are going to be large sums of money, Let's invest a little on the front end and avoid those long-term costs. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that would be the human element, but a lot of departments, you know, it's you got to you got to show the bean counters. Well, walk me through your journey. You were thinking about professional sports and physical therapy. You know, you end up having a, a little one. You, you know, you get married at a young-ish age. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what was your kind of on-ramp experience in law enforcement? So, really. What I did was, uh, again, I, I was at a point where I said, I've, I've got to get a good job where I have good benefits and it's steady income. And of course, government work is, you know, steady because the government's here. It's It's been here through all of the pandemics, through all of the ups and downs of the stock market, all that stuff. You know, it's just a steady job. And so um, that and the draw to do something, um, I think I was just pushed into it earlier than I had planned on. Cause I, in my head, I kind of said, well, I want to go to the military, um, do a quick stint there and then jump out and get into law enforcement. Um, but instead I just went straight into this. And so I, essentially I just applied, I shotgun applications out. Um, and, uh, Pinal County was one of the first ones that contacted me. So I started through their process and they were the first one to hire or offer me a job. And, and so I said, yes. And, at 20 years old, I ended up starting work here, having no idea what I was getting into. My my mom worked for the post office, and so she kind of had warned me what government work actually looks like and uh, some of the pitfalls. And so I kind of knew on the peripheral, you know, what it entailed for, for the government side of things, but I had no idea what actual cop work was, was going to be like. And so I, I came to work at 20. Um, my first assignment was in the jail. So I worked in our jail first and uh, I started there for about a year. And then I am uh, you. I reapplied essentially to become a deputy uh, for the same agency and got moved into the police academy and went out to the road as a deputy. And uh, that's that's where I've been since. And, you know, kind of moved through different areas in the agency and, and moved up the, the ladder and rank. And now I'm in my final few years and I'm going to get out of this profession. <laughs> I worked for Anaheim Fire for a few years out in California. And when I was there, uh, there was one, the guys who was on our ambulance operators, and he tried actually for a long time to get into fire. I don't know what the barrier to entry was, but he ended up going to the law enforcement side. And uh, so that kind of educated me on their system a little bit. And I know over there you have to do jails or prison before you can transition to the streets. Right. Talk to me about the pros and or if there are any the cons of that versus going straight into the streets like a lot of other agencies do. Uh, well, 
So, we, I mean, we even look at it here. We talk about that all the time. I feel that anybody who has started in our jail first and then went out to the street as a cop do better quicker. Um, so the, the pros are that you you get an understanding of who you're going to be dealing with right because you're you're dealing with people who have committed a crime and they're in the jail for a reason they're not they're not in there for singing too loud in church they're in there for different crimes they've committed so you're dealing with that element already it gets you prepared for that you kind of learn the con games that go on in there uh you you learn the gang rules right if you don't know those you kind of learn like okay these gangs don't like those gangs and this is how they operate. This is how they function. This is their hierarchy. Uh, so you learn a lot of that stuff. And when you go out to the street after learning all of that in a in a more controlled environment, because you know in the jail, while there can be violence, it's a lot more controlled environment because they're you're controlling their movements from point A to point B. They're in cells. Uh, you know you can lock them down. All that stuff. Uh, so it's a more controlled area to learn all that stuff as a youngster. And then when you go to the street, I, I think another thing that it does, I, I know that me specifically, I felt it when I would work on the street and I would run into those same gangsters, you already have a reputation. They already know who you are. Uh, they've dealt with you in the jail. Um, and, you know, when you deal in the gang world, it's really funny because um, they say they respect certain things and they do for cops. They you know, did you treat them fairly? Uh, how did you talk to them? Uh, what level of respect did you show them if if they indeed deserved respect? All of that stuff matters to them. And so when you, so you kind of gain your reputation in the jail. And then when you go out to the street, it actually becomes a little bit easier to deal with these guys because they already know you. You already know them. You know who's who, who's clicked up with who, who hangs out with who, uh, who doesn't like who. Um, so it really helps your ability to be a good law enforcement officer as you work that area that the cons would be i think really for me and I, I can only speak for myself the con for me was i didn't like being inside you know all the time i i as a deputy i was out and about i'm out in the public um dealing with stuff and while it's dangerous it's it's the real world right so you're out dealing with people's problems putting that to rest, but you're out dealing with the world, getting to see the world, you can drive around. Um, and so I would say that would probably be the biggest con for me when I was working in the jail is just being stuck in the facility for the whole time. Well, that's something that I've kind of talked about once in a while on here is I don't think people realize that the people working corrections are really experiencing almost the same thing that the prisoners are themselves. I mean, they've got right. the shift work. You're going to go in a windowless building a lot of times, you know, so you might arrive in the dark and leave in the dark. And even in the hospital setting, doctors and nurses, I have the, all the prereqs to go to PA school and that stuff, and I refuse to because it's totally different when you go find a patient in a car, up a tree, down a pipe, and you bring them to this controlled environment. These poor people are in that building again there's not normally many windows in most er's um and they are there for 12 hours a day for decades of their life right yep yeah it's it's definitely a thing and and uh i i give huge kudos to anybody in the correction or detention world because of that because they they're able to fight through that and some of them you know don't mind that that's that's their realm and that's fine um because we've had people honestly that have went from the jail out to the road and have decided like, hey, this is not for me. I want to go back in and, and work in there. Um, and that's fine. 
because you know how it is. We we all have a niche. We all have a duty to fill, and uh, we need everybody to fill their spot so that you know the the overall machine runs. So on your on-ramp, you, you come out of the jails, you go into the academy. At that time, almost 30 years ago, what did the fitness standards and the defensive tactics training look like? Uh, the fitness standards were were what's called uh, Cooper standards, right? And it's uh, Dr. Cooper that formed them. And so you had to run a mile and a half. You had to do a certain amount of push-ups. You had to do a certain amount of sit-ups, all timed. And, and uh, you know, you had to do so many. Um the DT standards were, we had the old uh, PR24s. So if anybody's familiar, LAPD made them famous, right? They're the uh, the batons with the kind of the side handle. So those were the thing. Uh, so we carried those. We had to do uh, defensive tactics with those. And, and again, just the name, defensive tactics. It was all defensive moves. And it was all uh, basically designed to work your way out of an attack and, and not really be aggressive. Um, and not that that's changed a whole lot over the years, because, uh, the, the one thing that's weird about police work is that the, the general public expects us to contain violence, but not be violent while we do it. And <laughs> it's a, it's a really weird anomaly because they just don't understand if they're not operating in this world. Military guys understand it because they're, they're operating in that same type of realm, uh, but the normal person just doesn't understand that uh, when you're dealing with either emotional violence or uh, directed violence because they're they're criminals, there's no other way to meet that than with counter violence. And uh, what we have to do to stay alive is we have to ratchet that up a little bit. Right. So if they're here with their violence. I've got to be above them, meaning I'm being more violent and uh, I've just got to know when to turn it off. And so we've got to be more violent quicker than our bad guys to solve the problem. And then we have to back out of it. Um, and so the the defensive piece that that mindset has changed over the years. Uh, and, you know, we discuss they still call it defensive tactics, but um, we discuss more offensive moves and and being, you know, being the first to get in the fight because we're always behind the curve too, right? When somebody pulls a gun on us, somebody swings a fist at us, you're reacting to that. But uh, the way we teach now compared to back then is uh, quicker reactions. Uh, and I, there's no other way to say it, more violent reactions, but not violent to impose injury, violence to win the fight. Um, and so that, that'd be the big contrast, I would say, for, for that. Now, what have you seen as far as the evolution of the nucleus of some of the skills that you use now? We've watched jujitsu, for example, be embraced by some agencies. I wouldn't say all um, wrestling, even Krav Maga from some people. You know, what have you kind of found as work within your department? Well, uh, it, it's tough, man, because uh, I can tell you, you know, in a, in a administrative position, your your hands are tight sometimes, and it's not even by you and that's what a lot of people don't understand and, and you try to explain it to street level sometimes um to to get them to understand like this is why we have to have this decision because think there's things that are pushed by insurance coverage right because you have people who are covering your agency with insurance and they want certain things there's things that are driven by the governing board of our certification for peace officers so the governing board says this is what you shall teach and so we have to teach those things 
um, where we have some latitude, we do like to bring in just other stuff. And we're huge, like myself and, and Sheriff Lamb are huge on let's look outside the box and, and and not just box ourselves into what has always been done because that's one of the things we both hate the most is we'll find we'll find an issue and we'll say why are we doing that well that's the way we've always done it and we're like that's bullshit like that's that's stupid let's not do that that way anymore cuz it's not working and so to your point with the uh like jujitsu and that stuff we know like we've shown that our 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 Fights a lot of times go to ground. So why not be trained in how to control that, that environment and Krav Maga, Krav Maga and uh, even, uh, oh my gosh, I lost it. Uh, Aikido, right? Some of the, the throws and some of the locks and that stuff all has application. And so like myself, I took Jeet Kune Do for a while um, because Bruce Lee was just the master of not being locked in to one style and, uh, you know, I, I loved his theories and his philosophies on using what was good for you and throwing everything else out, but but getting as much as you can. And so we do that as well where we can. But I think we're we're way behind the curve in law enforcement. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with the lawyers we deal with and also the public we deal with. Right. The, the public doesn't like the way violence looks, but unfortunately, it. You know, it is what it is. But then they'll go and turn on Rambo 6 and watch it all night. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, the, the Bruce Lee stuff, I absolutely adored his teachings. The absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, you know, mentality is is spot on. I mean, you know, right. what, what does he say? Have have no way is the way. I love yeah. that way of thinking. You like water. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. But what about the evolution of the fitness standards? You had the Cooper test originally. Have you seen progress in the last three decades on that side? Uh, well, this is kind of a, it's a tough question because, so the standards have obviously changed, uh, and we've seen a lot of, <laughs> I think like this whole wokeness thing started a long time ago. People just don't understand that it did. Um, we've seen evolution of what we require. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of it has been on, well, you know, we can't require them to do that much physical exertion because then they can claim that we're somehow singling them out or their class out. And so let's change the standards a little bit to make it a little bit easier so that this group of people doesn't feel like they're singled out. And so I feel like there's been a lot of that go on over time because, dude, when I got hired, it was like, here's the standards. You make them or you don't come to this career. That's it. And uh, we've lost that piece. Um not completely lost it, but it's been way watered down, right? And and so our fitness standards in that realm um, have changed. But I think we have gotten better in our profession at the not only fitness but well being. Um, so as the individual, your your fitness level and your well being, we've gotten better at at least talking about it and. Uh, giving the information to people and even incentivizing some of that. Like, hey, if, if you perform at certain levels, uh, there's an incentive for that. Um, but we still live in a world of, of judges and lawyers, man. And so some of the stuff we would like to do, we just, we can't do. Um, and some of it we get sued for because, again, one person or this class of people 
feel that it's discriminatory towards them rather than being what it is as an actual standard so that we know if I'm on the battlefield with with my guys, I know that everybody is at the same level um, or higher. Some of them will be even higher than I would be, but we're at least at a minimum, we're all here. I think we've lost some of that. But again, I think we have gotten better at educating. Um, and I, I feel like cops are more fit than they were back then. So when I started, there were less cops that worked out on a normal basis, less cops that worried about their health. It was just like, yeah, the hell with it. We're, we're just going to go full bore and whatever happens, happens. And that's why as I got into my 30s and 40s and some of the old dogs that were starting to retire when I, uh, you know, they were old dogs when I started. Now they were hitting retirement and then dying. Right. And, and it was because they weren't as healthy back then. So I, I do think we've but I don't think it's just a profession. I think it's as a society, we've kind of moved that way. Well, it's something I've talked about a lot. I went to school in Florida, fire school. And in this state, the firefighter certification is called minimum standards. So it is labeled clearly, this is the shittest you should ever be in your entire career. And in that, you're climbing stairs, you're lugging hose, you're dragging bodies, you're doing a lot of work. And what blows my mind is as I progressed into the the fire service, you know, there was some departments like out west that were very, very um, self-motivated. And it really almost wasn't a need for standards because really everyone kept themselves in great shape. And then conversely, I would argue I've I've been in one of the worst places where, you know, God help you if, you know, certain crews are responding to your child. And what blows me away is I've had people from all kind of walks as far as um, strength and conditioning, you know, high-level coaches – and yes, there's a real conundrum if you're like, okay, well, we've got to figure out deadlifts and you know, vertical jumps and all this stuff when it's a lot more basic than that. Can you right. drag this hose? Can you drag this person? Can you climb the stairs with this gear that you would need on a fire up to the top? Um, and it's, you know, it's a physically demanding job. What really blows my mind, though, is more often than not, it was the unions that are opposing the fitness standards. You know, yeah. So this is what maddens me. I've fought to hold myself at a high standards i've overcome injury to get back on the floor to be even better than i was before because i've always had the mindset that someone might die if i can't do my job i don't understand why decades later we're still swimming you know the people that are really trying to forge the wellness and the, the the performance standards are still swimming upstream like you know decades later yeah and i i think it Ultimately, what what ends up happening, obviously, as you move up in tenure and rank, you move up in age, right? So I think you just have uh, people that naturally kind of float into a comfort zone and they allow themselves to get stuck there. Um, And I do think I think the fire industry does a better job than the police industry um, with their fitness standards and, you know, their requirements. And it's it's just a difficult thing because. You can talk to people all day long about not only them performing their job well, but having a good quality of life and and then actually living out some retirement. Because um, in Arizona, at least, our retirement system thrives because typically speaking and statistically speaking, we die within five years of retiring. So, you know, that that alone should motivate people like to not slide into that comfort zone and let themselves slide out of of being you know physically fit and ready to do the job and uh, like you said unions 
and lawyers and judges, dude, are the are the biggest downfall to the whole fitness side of it because you do you get sued, uh, you get unions that you know will do the walkouts, whatever, because they don't agree with it, or they have people that can't pass it, and therefore they don't want it in place. Um, so it, it's a difficult realm, and and I don't think the normal public understands how much of that we have to navigate, and like we have. With, with everything going on in the world with cops, you have this big demand, like, hold cops accountable. And like, dude, we try. But there's so many things behind the scene that you don't see that, you know, protections afforded and all this stuff that we we are doing the best job we can. Nobody wants to hold ourselves accountable more than us. We don't want bad apples amongst us. But sometimes it's very difficult to weed that out. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that in my career where they've bent over backwards to reinstate people that should never have got the job in the first place and then people that actually need help from their you know unions that have paid dues for decades they just leave them you know high and dry and don't get me wrong there are some great unions out there but to me if you're not going to invest in the fitness therefore the performance level while we're on the job which will then only benefit the people in a healthier retirement then shame on you right yep absolutely so navigating, you know, going through your career, I want to get to the narcotic side because I think that's another important um, conversation, especially with the problems at the border. Right. But you were on one side of the law as a younger man. Were there any aha moments in the jails or beyond, but now you're wearing the uniform on the other side of the fence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, there's probably been aha moments my whole career, you know, when when you see in somebody yourself and what you could have been had you continued down the wrong road. And then even looking back at childhood friends that went down the wrong road, because I, I think probably probably five good, solid childhood friends that I constantly hung out with. Uh, one of them's doing double life in prison. Um, three of them are dead. And one of them is the he's doing OK. <laughs> so you look back at that and you think, holy shit, you know, that could have easily been me. And then, you know, as you go through this career, again, you see people with similar circumstances, similar backgrounds, and you see how their life is and and you realize like, oh, my God, that, you know, had I not changed or made better decisions, that could have easily been me. Um, But I think it also gives you empathy uh, as a cop and and helps you in that realm, too, uh, because you don't look down on those people. You you have empathy towards them and their situations. But uh, for the aha moments themselves, there's. There's been so many, man, but I can I can definitely think back and there's specific moments where I'm like, man, like I'm glad I did not go out that night with those guys when they, you know, were supposedly going to a party, but then they went and did this. Um, and as a cop, I think my my aha moments were probably more surrounded around my kids, right? You look at your kids and and uh what you have as a family. And you're just like, man, you know, this could have all been not here. It could have been me sitting in a cell somewhere with some other dude um, for years. So there were those moments throughout the career. Um, And again, for me, mostly surrounded by my family and kids. So one of the observations that I've I've tried to kind of paint the picture of is I truly believe in my heart of hearts that 99.99999% of people are a blank canvas when they're born. If there's not some crazy, you know, chemical abnormality in the brain, for example, 
And then, you know, we're ultimately a result of our environment and decisions that we make. When you look back and you've got this interesting kind of uh, perspective of some of your friends who are in behind bars or are no longer with us, what were some of the compounding elements when, if you can kind of analyze it, that sent them down the wrong path? And then conversely, what were some of the positive things? I mean, obviously you had a child, which is a big thing, but that sent you up the correct path. Oh, man. That's difficult because it, it, it can be family situations. I think a lot of times, cause I, I know, you know, looking at a couple of my friends, they just had broken homes. And so I know getting into gangs and stuff that that's what it becomes like that becomes your family. But of course there's not really good choices involved with that. And sometimes I think what people miss, like, and I can say it with a couple of my friends is sometimes you are a victim of circumstances because there were, there were a couple of times where my buddies weren't trying to get in trouble, trouble found them and it found them in a bad way. And all of a sudden they're in a spot, but it's, it's because of where we grew up, how we grew up. And they didn't necessarily ask for that. I can tell you me specifically, I I got jumped one time at a, at a pizza joint by a, a gang that was rival to my buddies. I had, I was not affiliated other than he was my friend, but I paid the price because he was my friend. And I, you know, I wasn't in his gang or anything. I was just, his friend and he happened to be in that gang. So I was guilty by association. Um, and I get jumped. Now, let's just say I get jumped by a few guys and I have a gun on me and I pull that out and now there's a shooting and I would be facing whatever charges come along with that. If I hit somebody, if I hit an innocent bystander and I saw that happen so many times in that environment where some shit would kick off. And it would start this ball rolling. And all of a sudden you have a catastrophic event where there's, you know, either mayhem or uh, violence or death involved. And it was like, holy shit, that went from zero to 60. And now everybody's lives has changed. There's somebody laying over there dead. There's somebody going to prison for the rest of their life. Um, so with my friends, I saw a lot of that kind of stuff. So I, I, I don't want to say they're a victim of circumstances, but it is. It's the environment you're in. And it's just this vicious circle of, of that kind of bullshit going on. I think the difference for me, honestly, was my mom uh, recognizing that chaos around us and saying, I need to completely remove us from this and go to a completely different area with a completely different dynamic and then getting involved in sports uh, because you get... So moving out of that environment, a, a gang infested environment where I've got a team of guys that I hang out with and then being pulled out of that and being placed into an environment where there's no gangs. Um, everybody kind of knows everybody. It's a small town. There's sports. That becomes your team. You all have a common goal. Um, that was the, the catalyst for me to transfer out of that realm and, and into just back to normal society stuff. And I remember um, I've talked about this on a couple of different podcasts. When I first went to high school in the rural area, um, one of the first guys I, I met and kind of hung out with, he stopped me one day. Well, when we first met, I'll give you a funny story. He says, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm not a gangbanger. And he said, okay, where are you from? And I said, dude, I just told you, like, I'm not in the gang. And he goes, okay, okay, but I, I just want to know where you're from. And I said, dude, I'm not in a gang. And he goes, I don't know why you keep saying that. I just want to know where you came from. 
And I said, oh, okay, uh, there was a translation problem because <laughs> where are you from in my neighborhood? You're asking me what gang do I represent? And I said, I thought that's what you were asking me. And he's like, no, dude, there's no gangs here. And I was just asking you where you came from. And I was like, okay, different world, right? So fast forward a little bit, same guy. And, you know, it's probably a month later. And he's like, why are you always looking around? And I said, what do you mean? And, and he said, dude, we're walking and you're just, you're always looking around over your shoulder, side to side. You're always just like scanning everywhere. And I said, wow, I don't want to get jumped or shot or, you know, anything like that. And he's like, dude, who's going to shoot you? Or, you know, it, he it didn't comprehend. He didn't comprehend why I was thinking that way. And that was an aha moment for me because I was like, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. Like I'm not in that environment anymore. And so you actually start to get to relax and come into a, a normal, what, I found out was a normal world. I thought the other world was normal because you're brought up in that. Um, and so just seeing all that, that different stuff and feeling all that different stuff, starting to assimilate back into a normal world, starting to have friends that are teammates there. There's no boundaries. Like I could go to that neighborhood and be okay. I could go to that neighborhood and be okay. Um, that's what kind of catapulted me back into the, the normal world. And then my mom's side of the family, my grandma and grandpa, were, were both just good people. And so I, I had good family members to guide me, you know, take me out. We went hunting a lot, fishing a lot. Um, and that's where you get to talk to kind of your elders, right? And they give you guidance on where to go. And I think those are very formative years when you're in high school and getting getting removed to a normal world and getting that input from adults is is kind of what got me on track or back on track. Well, I'm so glad they asked that question because it underlines a couple of things. I think firstly the anti-police narrative that's going on and of course you know there are certain people that do things that are very very bad in uniform and we're not talking about them we're talking about everyone else but you never ever ever hear and this is something that's so apparent to first responders because we see it with our own eyes you never hear why the fuck are our streets so dangerous if i go right. to iceland or norway or sweden or portugal people aren't murdering each other on the streets when are we going to have that conversation? What are we doing that's creating an environment that, like you said, if I don't take a child away from Compton, that there's a good chance that they're going to end up in this gang or that gang. But then yep. I grew up in rural England where the only gang I would have joined would be the sheeps or the cows, you know? So <laughs> I never saw them having fights in the middle of the field, but it's true. Same exact person. But if right. I grew up here, I'd probably be dead in prison. But if I grew up right. here, I'm just really good at bailing hay. You know, so it's yeah. uh, it's 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 needs to be a big part of the conversation. The other side, which you've touched on, and in this case, it was family, is mentorship. So mm -hmm. many people sit in their fucking seats, and you mentioned keyboard warriors earlier, and right. oh my god, this country, blah blah blah. Instead of being a mentor in their own home and then walking outside their front door and saying, "How can I be a mentor in my own community and take that yep. one child that maybe would have strayed down the wrong path and actually corral them into whatever positive, you know, arenas we have yeah. as well." Yeah. And that's dude, that is a big part of of where I'm headed with retirement because as I come to the end of my career, I'm trying to figure out like what am I going to be when I grow up, right? And uh over the past 4 or 5 years, uh I've gotten I've definitely gotten back to my faith, but I've started realizing, and I told my wife this, there is a battle for our youth going on and we're losing it. And so um, I've invested in 
our youth more by by becoming, uh, you know, when we go to church on the weekends, the first part of going to church for us is serving in our children's area so that I do get to have sit down conversations with them. And most of those kids, I've been with them now since they were they were kindergartners. And now some of them are fifth and sixth graders and getting ready to go into junior high and high school. And most of them didn't even know I was a cop until three or four years in. And then they'll find out, you know, somehow like, hey, you're a police officer. Like, yeah, that's what we need to get back to also for our profession is they need to see me, Matt, the human being. And when they started taking us out of schools and started uh, disengaging us from interacting with our youth, that's where it all went to shit because that youth is going to become adults. And we as law enforcement, if we can humanize ourselves to them and them to us, that changes the whole narrative. And then we also get to mentor. Um, but you're right. And I see it all the time with, with adults who are having children. And we always joke that, yeah, you have to go through all this shit to get a license, but anybody can have a kid. Right. And uh, some of these people are not, they're in it for themselves. So these kids suffer. So they're, they don't understand that you just brought a human being into the world that you're responsible for. And that responsibility means you're all in. Like that means you're teaching them the right things to do. You're mentoring them. You're going to give up a lot of your life to invest in their life so that they become a good human being. And and that's what we're lacking. Everybody gives kids devices now here. I just want you to be distracted so I don't have to deal with you. They want to push problems off to other people rather than investing in them. And, and again, that's where I'm trying to dive back in. I'm, I'm coaching a, a football, a flag football team right now. And I know nothing about coaching flag football but what I have found out is that it is cool to get these 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 young teenagers on a sports team and then be able to have like life conversations with them, too, because, you know, obviously you get everybody from all different backgrounds. And when you have a kid that's acting a certain way and you sit him down and say, hey, dude, that's not cool. Like, that's not how we act. This is how normal people act. This is how we interact with each other just getting to pour into them and, and show them, you know, really show them love, show them some humanity, some love, and that regular other humans care about them and care how they do. And they're going to carry that forward because they're going to emulate that behavior because it feels good. Nobody, nobody can say that they're happy hating, but man, it feels good when you love somebody. Absolutely. I think this is the problem. And I, I, be very very clear i feel this way about the left and the right but if you look at the very top of the chain our presidents the last couple of times like petulant children and there's a lot of kind of virulent hatred behind a lot of their words and then you look what's popular on social media and it's the kid getting bullied in the school bathroom and everyone's just filming instead yeah. of the leadership saying you need to be a sheepdog in the community. We need to pull people together. If someone's getting beaten up, you need to be the person that steps in and be like, are we going to stop this or are we going to just keep fucking filming? You know right. what I mean? And this is the problem is that there's, if we don't have, and it starts from the bottom up and then the top down, but if we don't have strong personalities talking about kindness and compassion and, and courage at the very, very top, then this is what we're seeing. This is the ripple effect of whether you're, you know, stating that all Mexicans are murderers and rapists, or if you're saying if you don't take a vaccine, then you're, you know, you're you want to murder everyone in your country. It's the same exact thing. You're just saying different words. Right. Exactly. Now, and and we have become a very hateful society, 
And, uh, and we saw like the pandemic, I think, brought the worst out of everybody because they were kind of cooped up and, and had to spend time with each other. <laughs> and so you saw just the, the hate pour out. And, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think people always ask, what can we do differently? And I always tell them my number one answer is get involved. Don't sit on the sidelines and watch it. And to your point, you know, go out and mentor kids involve yourself there's so many opportunities to get involved with these kids and uh i think that's a big part of of how we progressed as a society if you look back at the start of my career compared to the end of my career now um i think at the start 30 years ago we did have a lot more involvement and we did have a lot more mentoring going on and people were willing they weren't as distracted by just bs they they were actually living real life and they didn't have all these facades going on and they interacted with each other better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get to you know, a number of topics, but they're all kind of rolled into one ball. So you've written a book recently, Interceptors, The Untold Fight Against the Mexican Cartels. Yes. So obviously we'll talk about the book specifically in a little bit, but you're a brand new police officer or, or deputy. Um, as you progress through the 30 years, what have you seen through your own eyes as far as that, you know, usually cocaine and marijuana, usually, you know, mono a mono fist fights to where we are now in 2023? Oh, man, that is such a big answer. <laughs> it's, it's progressed in so many different ways um, because, and, and you have to look at the world arena because, you know, drugs have always been there. They, they've just been, they've shifted on types and who controls them and all that stuff. But as I was in the beginning of my career, the Colombians still kind of controlled everything, right, as the, the cartels. And so they kind of had the power. They were the violent ones. Um, like for us, Mexico, they were just transporters. So it was just coming through Mexico to, to get to the U.S. where the uh, end user is. Um, and again, you had just certain drugs then as time went on, we started we started seeing methamphetamine. So methamphetamine became the big thing. And while drugs were kind of changing, so you still had the big ones, right? You had cocaine, you had marijuana. Marijuana has always been pretty prolific. Uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. That that was kind of the thing. Uh, but then the world stage was shifting because the Colombians lost power and the Mexicans gained power, and they kind of took control of the the market. Um, and when they did that, now we have the problem right in our backyard. So we have the people who are the bosses right next to us rather than, you know, one or two countries removed. And so um, that changed the dynamics. And then if you think about it, like if you think about Arizona, where I'm standing right now was Mexico before we moved the line as the U.S., right? We, we bought some land. We moved the line. Um so this we have a heavy Mexican culture here. So you have familial bonds on both sides of the line. And that doesn't help the problem because some of these families are cartel families. And so they have ties on both sides of the line, which makes it easy to, to coordinate, to move their product, all that stuff. So that plays into it. Time moves on. We, we hit methamphetamine. Meth starts becoming the big thing. Um, the Mexicans have Chinese connections so they can get the precursor chemicals for these synthetic drugs. So they start mass producing much more potent meth than we've ever seen. And that kind of took the stage and, and really moved to the forefront. And then 
we were not only were we battling a new, uh, more pure synthetic drug, but we were battling an enemy right in our backyard who has family living in the U.S. And so it progresses. They get more technological that we as a nation and a, a world get more technologically advanced. So technology starts playing a part. You have social media come in, you have cell phones, you know, all the, the computers now that we carry in our hands, that all plays into it. And they essentially start becoming their own culture. So the narcos, they they have completely dominated their own narco culture and they're, you know, they're, they're a pop culture now. So you have kids who are, emulating these these drug barons and emulating their behavior and so they've gotten more and more violent towards each other the kids are emulating that and so each generation is one upping and it's just compounding you know year after year to where you look at the cartels now they went from they might a boss might shoot a boss to get rid of his cartel and that was like the old school method um, usually they wouldn't mess with kids or family or any of that stuff. That was taboo uh, to now they'll kill your whole family. They'll skin you and they'll hang you off a bridge. Right. You know, so that's the cartel of today. So it's progressed from kind of the old Cosa Nostra, but in Mexico um, where they had rules, they had lines, you know, they had specific things that they did and didn't do to no lines and they have their own culture they control, I would say, the economy of, of a country um, and they control probably a good chunk of military and police of a country. And, and they do it through violence and they do it through it's plata or plomo, right? It's it's silver or lead. So they'll shoot you or they'll pay you off and they've mastered that. And so that's the cartel that we deal with today. Now, what about the impact of the American opioid crisis? I had Sam Quinones on quite a while ago now who wrote Dreamland, and yep. you know, he walked through the, the pill mills, and it's ironic because that's when I first moved to the States. I was down there, and my ex actually, unbeknownst to her, was working for a service that got scripts for these these patients and it took her a few months and when she realized she was like all right, i'm out <laughs> yeah. but um then you see that all closed down here in south florida and then um then there's this void and now all of a sudden you have the uh black tar heroin coming in from from uh, mexico so talk yep. to me about your perspective of that particular crisis yeah we we saw the same thing and, and the funny thing is this so while that was all kicking off and of course we're we're ground zero here in arizona right because we see everything first so before the rest of the country starts seeing like the blue m30s before anybody around the country knew what that was we were flooded with them we knew exactly what it was and and that it was coming um so it's been that way my whole career we always get hit first and so as the opioid epidemic started man couldn't talk there for a minute as the uh, epidemic started, um, we're trying to figure out, because I was working in drugs at that time, we're trying to figure out what can we do to combat this and how how is this happening? Um, and I talked to a, a doctor offline and he says, hey, I won't go on the record and say this, but I'll, I'll tell you. He said, I, I, I work for, I'm a doctor, I work for a big HMO. And he said, I'm required as a doctor, as a physician, I have to, because my company says I have to have the patient from entrance to exit 30 minutes that's what i get and that includes check-in that includes all the paperwork they have to do me seeing them and he said so i am not i'm not healing anybody 
he says, I'm putting band-aids on everything. And he said, so if they come in, I go in, I see them and they say they have a back injury, then I'm giving them something to mask the pain of their injury. I'm not actually dealing with what's causing that pain. I'm just giving them something to make them feel better so that they can get out the door and on their way. And that's really how the opioid epidemic started, right? As they started giving scripts. And of course, if anybody watches Dope Sick, um, you know, that's that's a, a it's, it's almost a damn documentary that's out there on everything that happened during the opioid crisis, whether uh, you want to admit it or not, these drug companies pushed their dope. And uh, that's what happened then. So they, they saw a big opportunity to push that stuff, get people addicted. And of course, what company does not want a user base addicted to their product, right? Whether it's phones or dope, um, they want you addicted so that you keep coming back for it. And so that's exactly what happened. And then when, that started getting cracked down on where people couldn't get their scripts. Of course, you started seeing robberies at, at pharmacies, violence to get, because what, what people who have never been involved with the, the with somebody who's hooked on op- opioids, they physically get sick. And so they are being driven not only by the, the craving for the drug, but physically, they want to feel better. So, I mean, that's a, a big driving factor for people to be violent. Um, so anyways, we move into the opioid crisis, start cracking down on that stuff so they can't get the pills as easy. So what's the next solution is heroin. So, and the Mexican cartels being opportunists see this coming. And so they start flooding the market with heroin because it's much easier for me to get a hit of heroin, which does the exact same thing as the uh, the pill that I was getting from the doctor. Um, so then all of a sudden we have the heroin use shooting through the roof. Um, and now with the fentanyl, we have the same exact thing going on. It's, it's a new way to distribute the same type of drug. Now, what are you seeing as far as the outcomes as, as a medic? I don't, I think I was at the very beginning of the fentanyl crisis before I transitioned out the fire service. So I saw a lot of heroin. I mean, there was literally you know, I can think clearly of a time putting an EJ and someone in a Dunkin' Donuts and she right. was taking her last breath and we saved her. Then she was all angry that I killed her high. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I did get to see that, but it certainly wasn't fentanyl, I don't think, at that point because, you know, one one dose would normally bring them around. Right. What are you seeing as far as the outcomes? You have addiction, this, this whole timeline, but as far as the deaths themselves, are you seeing an increase now with this incredibly toxic product that's out there? Yeah, the deaths have, have definitely risen. I I think our last number, this was a couple months old, but I think we are nationwide, we're at like 107,000 that have died from fentanyl poisoning. And so definitely a much more potent drug. And then the weird thing is when you talk to uh, people who are addicted to opioids, they're they're looking for that. They're they're looking like you said that the the girl got mad when you actually brought her back to life. And so we have people who are addicted to opioids who are trying to find the good pills and the good pills being the ones that kill people. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's a crazy, crazy addiction to fight. Um, the lethality has gone through the roof and they're flooding the market with it. Right. Uh, Cause again, they have the Chinese connection. They have the precursor chemicals readily available. They have uh, the means to make it down in Mexico. So they're making it by the millions and flooding the market with this stuff. And uh, I think, Part of the part of the problem, too, is because heroin, if you think back, heroin has to be taken certain ways. Right. 
Um, and uh, a lot of people do not like needles. And, and that's one of the main ways that heroin was was done. It was injected. Um, if you think about pills, we've all taken pills, right? We've taken aspirin. We take pills have a different stigma with them. And so I think um, the, the cartels saw that, too. It was a it was a way to market it. It was a way to um, kind of destigmatize the that it's bad. And they started flooding that up here and, and getting people addicted. And again, the same addiction, just easier to take. And the market's flooded with that stuff. And, and uh, it's it's a tough fight. And it's going to be harder and harder to win the, the more grasp that it gets. So I want to put a question to you, and I'll, and I'll preface it with my own personal opinion and what I've learned. Um, as a paramedic and a firefighter, obviously, I got to see behind the curtain. And as I mentioned, that was one of the people that I saved. There was a lot that I didn't, um, or we, my crew. When I started this podcast, my mother had moved to Portugal. And as I you know, got into this, she's like, hey, did you know that we decriminalized um, drug addiction here in Portugal? And we've had amazing success. And I had no idea at all. So I ended up actually going to Lisbon when I was visiting them one year and sitting down with the guy that spearheaded this in that particular country. They had a horrendous opioid crisis. I think some of their soldiers came back from one of the conflicts in Africa um, and one of the previous uh, nations that I'm assuming that they colonized. And it was it was probably, I think, supposedly one of the worst addiction problems in the whole of Europe, if not the world. Having done it the way that so many countries do it already, they they're, they're a pretty amazing country. They're they're kind of almost pseudo second world, but they are very progressive in some areas, and they basically put it to the people like, "Hey, we've got an idea to try something different. This appears to be a mental health crisis that we're going through, so we're going to decriminalize." And it doesn't mean you can go into your store and go buy crack and meth from you know next to the shampoo. Right. Um, but if you're a drug smuggler or dealer, you're still going to go to prison. But if you're an addict and you're caught with a user's amount, we're going to give you an interview and we're going to basically educate you on all the things that are available to get yourself healthy again. And in ten, less than 10 years, they went from the worst problem to the, the, the least um, amount of addicts in the whole of whatever it was, either Europe or the world. Right. What that, the ripple effect then, it opened up so many resources in the court system, in the prisons, and in law enforcement to pursue the real shitbags, the sellers and the, the smugglers, and clamp down on those. Also, removing that stigma, all the addicts that were fearful of being arrested came out and actually started seeking help. Now, when I look at the supply and demand model of, of you know, economics, to me, and maybe I'm just you know deluded, we're, we're in a nation where we consume 75% of the world's opioids and we have 75% of the, the world's incarcerated people in this one country and we're the most affluent. Right. So my theory from what I saw as a first responder and, and this progressive model is if we decriminalized addiction and stopped sending addicts to prison and arresting addicts, that would cut off the snake, which would then cut the head off the snake, which would then take a lot of power away from all the horrible things that are happening outside our borders. You are in a very high level law enforcement position, but you've worked in narcotics, you've worked in the jails, and now you're at this perspective. We've tried this war on drugs for almost 100 years. Harry Anslinger started this in the 30s, you know, basically off racism and job justification. But we've had a longitudinal study and things have clearly got worse and worse and worse. What is your perspective out of a more proactive way of looking at this as mental health patients and putting the power into the medical community 
rather than keeping it in the underworld and empowering them? 100% agree. Um, one thing that we know, uh, and, and if I think any cop in this profession would understand this, if they, if they worked in the dope world and, uh, understood it is that we are never, ever going to arrest our way out of this problem. There's just no way it's not going to happen. Um, programming and, um, assistance for the addicts and getting them back on track. Just like we were talking about with the kids, right? It's the same model. We have to invest in them, get them back on track to get them back to being successful, back as a, a contributing member of society. And that's the way we're going to fix it. So I, I couldn't agree more that we have to have a new look at it. And it's hard because you're going to law enforcement pushes back hard on that, right? Because everybody says, like, to your point, well, no, we're not going to just let everybody do drugs. Well, that's not the point of of these types of programs. You know, when you have very specific goals in mind and you're going to decriminalize for this group, but decriminalization doesn't mean we're just going to ignore it. It means we're going to focus in different areas for this group of people. And then the criminal element of this problem, we're going to focus even harder on to push them because that is really the snake, right? And and we're going to go after that and get rid of that. I, I think that the U.S. should be looking at models that are working, right? Because the war on drugs is, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't even think it's a war. It's it's just battle after battle. And uh, we're continuing fighting all these fights on all different fronts, and we're not really winning any of them. We make small victories, but that doesn't win the war. Yeah. Well, I think this is why the first responders' voice is so important. Like, I have pulled sheets over 15-year-old boys who were shot protecting their turf and, you know, and all the, the drugs that were around that. And I've watched it get worse. I mean, as we as we talk now, as you said, 107,000 Americans are dead because of fentanyl in 2023. The other thing is, you know, there's this, this kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric around the border and my question has always been, well, why are they fleeing their country? You know, what, what, and if we don't have no ownership on the fact that we are the consumers of this product that is being brought across and our laws from the 1930s that were really pushed onto the UK and Australia and a lot of the other places, you know, are ultimately the, the reason why Colombia happened and then Mexico. So what do you think, you know, king for a day mentality? would be the impact with you you've got such an incredible perspective on the border itself if you didn't have a consumer of illicit drugs in the US anymore what impact would that have on a lot of the problems that you guys are seeing down there oh my god it would it would nearly eliminate them because that's what what happens is people throw out this term of illegal immigration which it's the wrong term to use because we have some illegal immigration and we do have a flood of people here, but again, they, they are fleeing problems and the people who are fleeing Mexico. Cause I, I can tell you from my perspective, my, my wife's family is from Mexico. Her, her mom came over illegally and then got her citizenship, um, went through the process and their family had to flee parts of Mexico because they were being extorted so heavy by the cartels because they have so much power down there. And so if you eliminated that piece of it, dude, it would, it would change the game. And I think their country would be able to take back what they have lost and be able to run their country properly. We'd be able to run our country properly. Um, this, 
this really is it's bigger than illegal immigration and right now what you're seeing is a flood of human trafficking really it's the cartels who control the people who are coming up here those people don't don't cross those routes for free and they don't get here for free without some type of permission and some type of payment and so you have criminal organizations that are exploiting humans on that side of the border and humans on this side of the border and yeah that would it would be a game changer I agree. I think the other thing as well that I, it was interesting. I've talked about this before. The beginning of this podcast, as you've seen rabbit holes pop up and we just jump in with both feet. Um, I would be uh, talking to people from the special operations communities and I would ask them about drugs in Afghanistan and they were very, very tight lipped. And there was just, there was a literally a paradigm shift about three years ago where all of a sudden people wanted to talk about it. And but I don't think people understand that the illicit drug trade is what paid for a lot of the terrorism as well. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. If, if you look into the history of it, that's that's what they were using to fund. That's why they have all these poppy fields over there, right? That's what they're using to fund their terrorism. And the other thing they don't realize is all of those groups are connected to the groups in our backyard in Mexico. They're all criminal organizations. And they're all connected worldwide. And, and the Mexican cartels now have, they're called transnational criminal organizations for a reason, because they touch the entire world. They, they have their tentacles all throughout and they have a lot of money. And so they, those groups all work together and it all directly ties to one another. So you mentioned human trafficking. I've had a couple of guys from Deliver Fund on the show. I had Tamia Naj, who actually was trafficked from Hungary, so a different group oh, altogether. Wow. Um, talk to me about that problem. I think it's one of the real real kind of elephants in the room when it comes to, you know, the the world of crime in general. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh it's one of those taboo things, right? Because it it uh it affects all demographics. And uh, so we're having the Super Bowl here in Arizona in a few weeks. And that's one of the biggest draws for human trafficking, sex trafficking of any event. And so uh, you have a lot of different agencies, both local and federal, that are focusing on that problem. It's a huge problem. And uh, the, the problem is this, that when you have the people of the world who are in power and who hold control via the money that they have in their bank accounts, when those people are partaking it makes it a difficult fight because those people tend to control the people who make laws, the people who enforce laws. Um, so it makes it a very difficult fight. And I, I think that's what nobody wants to talk about. And I mean, I'm sure your listeners could think of several different big names right now, right off the bat that have been in the headlines on this specific subject who have been proven to be involved in this, but it just goes away. And it, it's it's no thing while kids keep getting, you know, transported and exploited and women keep getting transported and exploited. Um, so it, it's a it's a huge problem. And until I really feel like we're reliving Rome right now uh, as the U.S. and that we've reached a point where those in power are so corrupted in their power um, that it makes everything that is right difficult to do because they're involved in the wrong. Well, it's something I've talked about, and I'm hoping to get um, Tulsi Gabbard on very soon because I think she's 
truly someone who's in the middle and you know consequently because she's normal she hasn't been able to get to this position (laughs) but for me from an englishman who you know is an immigrant himself now um looking with a fresh pair of eyes and i'm looking back at my country as well certainly in in the states to participate in the run for president you have to be a millionaire if not a billionaire and you have to be corrupt. And I say that because you have to take handouts from lobbyists that will put you in that position. So right. whilst we use the same exact system over and over and over again, I feel like we're just going to end up with the same person. As I say, you know, you walk into a turd factory, don't expect cupcakes. You know what I mean? It's just, it is what it is. So we have to right. break, we have to make a new machine. We have to make a new system. And as I've heard Joe Rogan talking about, I don't understand politics very well, and I'm sure he understands it better than I do. But ultimately, a vote should be a vote. I mean, we've got this kind of crazy system where all oh, these votes count for more. It should be, you shouldn't be allowed to spend millions and millions and millions again preaching hate on television. Oh, this person's right. a shitbag. Oh, this person's a shitbag. Your children are watching. This is supposed right. to be the pinnacle of our entire infrastructure. But we should be, you know, remove these, these, um, barriers that allow regular great leaders to participate in this race and i think tulsi for example would be an amazing one she checks all the boxes if people care about skin color and all that stuff gender but she is an active duty national guard um she was a congresswoman of of, uh, hawaii and she just seems to be that you know walk softly but carry a big stick that we need we need someone that's going to pull people together and what drives me crazy is people will murder each other over these two ding-dongs that we've had the last few years but i ask anyone what is the definition of a leader someone who brings people together we have seen nothing but cleaving of communities the last few years yeah i i mean i have nothing i agree with you uh and and uh, i you know you you watched it i watched it um as an american citizen now it's it's and especially as a guy who's worn a uniform for most of his adult life to to protect my own citizens, uh, it's really disheartening to see where we're at as a country because I feel like we're just declining more and more rapidly. And what's really disheartening is when you talk to good people who would do a great job as a leader locally or nationally, and they don't want to get involved because they don't want to deal with all the bullshit or they don't want to put their family at risk or they... You know, they got a jaywalking ticket in 1985. And so that's going to be exploited and front page news, everything they did wrong instead of who they are right now and how they're going to lead a a nation or a state or a city. Um, So all of those factor in and and the problem just compounds. It's it's yeah, it's disheartening, man. Well, it goes back to what we said about the choir boy. You know, I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't an angel. JFK wasn't an angel. I mean, there's there's a bunch of other, you know, leaders that you could throw in there. But do you want that person that's squeaky clean to be in that position? No. As long as I think the biggest prerequisite is if you screwed up, own it. That's right. the big thing. As yeah. long as you own it. And this is what happens is these people deny ever doing any of these things rather than going, right. yeah, I fucked up. You know, I, I I cheated on my wife or I did this and I regret it to this day. But, you know, right. now, OK, now you're a human being just like us. But yeah. if you exclude presidents the way that we exclude, you know, first responders because they've got a little blemish, then, you know, it, it's it's fallacy. It's not even reality. Right. Yeah. No, it, it turns into what we have, which is one big circus. Now, I think we have <clears throat> over these last couple of elections, I think we have good people 
with good intentions starting to step up and, and move towards these leadership positions. But as you know, and as we've talked about, it's a huge machine that you're fighting. And so it's a hell of a fight to take something like that back. And they do not want to lose that power, right? Because they have power and control. So I, I don't know. I just don't know what the end result is. Yeah. But it's scary. <laughs> I think it's educating the masses and re reminding them that we're the base of the pyramid. That, yes, that, well, reminding those in power of that too, that, you know, they serve us, not the other way around. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more talk topic before we go to the book and then can yep. you tell us you know, what made you write it and some of the things that people will find in there. All right. Sadly, this, uh, you know, these mass shootings, and especially in our schools, are just a, a reoccurring element. And again, just another red flag in this mental health crisis that we're in. With your perspective, obviously, you spent years in SWAT as well. Um, what are just some of the principles that you believe in when it comes to right now actionable things that we can do to try and make our schools safer and protect our children? Well, I know from, from having gone through these conversations, uh, one of the biggest things is we need to think outside the box, just like everything else, right? Um, there are There are schools that have discussed, can our teachers be armed? And that becomes very controversial, right? Because some people don't want their kids going to school where teachers have guns. Uh, some don't mind it. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's a conversation that we need to have because we all know that generally speaking, when, when these guys make an attack like this, a, a mass shooting, they're cowards. They go till they, they meet their first resistance and then they either give up or they, they kill themselves or they get killed. Um, so I think we need to up our resistance and, and fortify. And I, I don't want you to think of fortify like, you know, just mass fortification around schools to make them look like a prison, but harden our targets so that they're not as easy to do this kind of stuff. Um, I think, like I talked about before, cops in schools is huge. It serves so many purposes. It serves as a deterrent. It serves as uh, um, we have good interaction with the children who are going to become adults so that we all function together good. Um, and that's another piece, having the cops in schools and then also having I know there's a bunch of military guys that always ask, like, hey, man, here's what I did in the military. Can I just go be at a school and be a form of deterrent and help fortify? And I think that's a conversation that that we need to have. But it's tough because, again, we have a polarized country. So now if you want to talk about guns, you're this side. If you, you know, don't like guns, you're that side, but we need to have honest conversations because it's not about guns, right? It's about criminal acts and it's about mass murderers. And so how do we stop this from happening? Um, and I think we can look back historically to when this didn't happen and why that was. And I think we're going to get a lot of the same solutions that we already talked about. Yeah, and I think this is all, again, you know, tied into what you said, the division, the mental health elements. I mean, it's not just guns. And this is what drives me crazy in this conversation. Like, I'm British, you know, I'm, I'm American now, and I have a gun in my safe because 
in 2023, I identify that it's a tool that, God forbid, you ever have to protect your family in a country full of guns. A gun is a very handy thing to have. Now, would it ideally be awesome, just like you did in rural Arizona, to be able to walk out your house and not worried about that? Yeah. And depending on where you live, that might be a luxury you already enjoy. But the the long-term goal is fixing this mental health crisis we have because there weren't shootings 40, 50 years ago in school. So right. that's, a, that's a huge part. But we've also got to address violent video games and sleep deprivation and psychiatric meds and mentorship and broken homes and all these other things too. And if we just yep. argue about guns, oh, you like guns, huh? You probably don't like vaccines either, do you? You know, it's just, it's such a ridiculous conversation that people are having. And meanwhile, our children are dying. So I yeah. agree 100%. We have SROs in the schools here. One thing, though, I had a, a an issue with one eye SRO making a horrible decision with my son and technically kidnapped him. She, he, he had a... Um, he was going through some stuff in his mother's house. He basically was very upset, wasn't doing anything self-harm-wise, wasn't threatening other people, and he got sent off for a 72-hour 72, 72 hold in a psych facility, oh, okay. just with totally outside protocol and everything. So that the other thing that, that Roger Shai, who came on the show, talked about was the selection process for that. A lot of these departments will put their... You know, the guys are on their way out in schools. I would argue the opposite. As you said, you want people that are mentors, that are in shape, that are fired up, they're going to interact with kids, and also, God forbid something happen, are tactically able to engage the target. Absolutely. And and uh, it is a difficult balance to, to, for the schools because, it, yeah, typically speaking, like if you were to talk to me at the beginning of my career and said, hey, we got a job for you. We're going to put you in an elementary school. I go, hell no, I don't want to go to elementary school, right? I signed up to do other stuff, not, not that, but it is that those are the guys because you're closer in age as well, right? Um, and, and that's a thing. So would you rather have some 50 year old man at, at your sixth grade class talking to you or a dude that's 21, 22? So he's not too far removed from, from high school. So, you know, closer age groups, they can talk about the, the, the same thing sometimes and know what they're talking about. Like now with my 14 year old, you and I talked about, we have, we have 14, 15 year old, some of the stuff they're talking about. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know what you just said because I'm not in that realm. So you have to have somebody that's able to translate, able to protect, uh, able to recruit. Honestly, we we're looking for our next generation of cops too. So th that's a thing. Um, so you have to hit all of those. And, uh, to your point, the video games is something that gets really swept under the rug. And um, I, I think it's, I think there's a couple of factors, obviously. Um, but like I talked about, man, that sure does become an easy babysitting tool, right? For parents to just let their kid jump on a video game. Um, and my son actually lost his because what we noticed is his behavior became super aggressive while he was playing these games. He's got his headset on and he's playing first person games where they're just running around shooting each other and he became super aggressive not only in his language but his behavior towards people on the headset and his behavior towards us as his family and we were like this is crazy we're not, we're not doing this and I, I think there's something to be said about that and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman dove into it way back when and started warning people like hey first person games are are causing problems first person kill games um, and I, I think we've seen because I've watched it with my son in Airsoft. He does Airsoft. Everything's a respawn, right? So you just respawn. So it's not really that I'm shooting you and killing you. I'm just shooting you, and then you're going to go respawn, and then I go to the next guy. And so they have this 
demented view of, of how the world actually works because they're constantly fed this crap. I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times, and when he talked about Assassination Generation, the book he wrote on this subject, I I told him, I'm like, I'm going to hold, hold my hand up. I was one of the people way back when that rolled my eyes when he talked about the video games. Same, same here. <laughs> yeah, but then when you unpack it and you talk about, you know, some of these shootings that he uses as an example where the kids never even really held a weapon and the accuracy of some of these attacks. But the biggest thing for me coming from our profession is also understanding sleep deprivation. You yeah. have a kid who's already off. And then now with these online video games, the bullying that's happening in, you know, you go into a group, you don't know who they are. And I've heard some of the things that these other kids are saying to my son. And he luckily kind of self opted out anyway. I was, I would, I definitely would chastise him when I heard him responding. I'm like, look, just, you need to just fucking play these without headphones to just yeah. mute these kids, just play the game. But yeah, you have all these factors of a kid who's already kind of teetering on the edge. And now you take away sleep because they're gaming all night and you got bullying in that game, that arena where they felt safe and seen yeah. and accepted and successful. On those anomalies, on those unique individuals, what Dave is talking about makes perfect sense. Uh, absolutely, no, he he nails it on the head in a couple different areas. And uh, I was like you, I was I was one of those guys like, ah, come on, man, is it really that bad? Um, but that was almost two decades ago, and as we've seen through those two decades, it has gotten worse and worse and worse. And the video games have gotten better and better and better at doing exactly what you're describing. Absolutely. Well, one just tangent quickly before we go to the book. Yep. You talked about recruitment. There's been a lot of interesting conversations, one especially with Dan Bornstein, um, talking about the, the pool of candidates that we have. And when we have the obesity ep uh, epidemic that we have, as well as our mental health epidemic, which I, th I would argue are completely the same thing, you know, 70% of our country is either obese or overweight. And right. so he's talking about that's not only a health crisis, and you know, the, the money that's causing this nation, but also a national security crisis, because that's, you know, basically two thirds or yeah, two thirds that we've taken out that could potentially be a soldier, a firefighter, a police officer, etc. What are you seeing as far as the pool of candidates that you're trying to hire? Oh, man. Um, well, it so it seems to be better. I, I'm going to be honest. It it's, seems to be better in the last few years. Uh, we went through a period where it was really difficult uh, to, to get viable, good candidates. Um, and lately, over the past few years, I feel like the candidates were getting their, their it's, it's a new generation. And it's almost, it feels to me like we're at a generational shift of, of our profession um where we have one generation that is kind of winding down and heading out of this career and we're picking up a new generation um and you know the the millennials and and uh the gen zers they get accused of all kinds of stuff uh, of being this or being that and and you know and we're boomers because we think old ways um but what i have noticed about the younger generation of cops that we're getting right now and it it really does my heart good is that they genuinely care um, as they get into this profession. And I can tell you, when I got into this profession and you have to sit down and you have to do your interview, you know the things you have to say. And you would say the things that you knew they were looking for, like, I want to help people and I just want to do good in the world. And some of that is true to an extent, but you're like, I want to drive fast and I want to shoot guns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this generation, this newer generation of cops, they genuinely 
want to make a difference in their community. They want to do something that means something at the end of the day and that they've had an impact on the world. However small it is, they've had some type of positive impact on the world. So I I really feel good as we move forward about our profession because um, while there's all the doom and gloom, I think this generation of cops, they think differently, they see things differently, and they're going to change our profession for the better if we just let them. See, that's such a refreshing thing to hear because I mean, I think, you know, obviously there is a health issue, but I I agree. It seems like our fit people are really fit. I, I coach and train at CrossFit gym. I do jujitsu and you see phenomenal people of that age. And you'd right. also argue the people that are going into police and fire now, that's like going into the military post 9-11. Like they right. know it's not going to be a cake, you know, a yeah. cakewalk is yeah, the right it, term. It's a little bit ugly right now. Yeah. So, so I can see how, yeah, the, the kind of the why in a lot of these young men and women is probably maybe you could argue a little bit stronger than if you were going in 20 years ago. Right. Yep. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I feel that way. And, and again, it gives me great hope because, you, you know, there's, there's times where you feel like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, the, the world is going to end. Uh, but then you get these newer, younger cops and you see like, nope, we are going to be fine because they are they are good to go and they're ready to roll. And, and uh, again, they they have a whole different view on the world, which is refreshing. And I, I think they are going to change our profession for the better. And I, I think we're going to be healthier than we've ever been. I think we're going to address issues that have always been taboo. And I think we're going to push forward as a profession where we get back to a type of policing where we just show up to handle the worst of the worst and most everything else gets handled by the community. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the book before, you know, we'll be mindful of your time. So, you know, you're working in a department, you're obviously on the border. So what made you write the book and what are some of the things that people can look forward to when they read it? Well, what made me write the book was like, I was just bored and no, just kidding. I was, <laughs> I was plenty busy. Um, but, uh, I was, I was actually telling the, the sheriff some of the stories of the things I had done. Um, and some of the things I had been involved in in my career. And, you know, you, you always talk to buddies and, and they jokingly say, man, you should have, you should write a book on that. You should write a book on that. And so I had that conversation with a couple different people. And the, the funny thing is now that I'm at the back of my career, uh, there's things I can talk about that I wouldn't have talked about while I was in it, um, specifically with my wife. Like I would have never told her some of these stories because I, she would lose her mind every night as I left. Um, so there's stuff that I, I was willing to talk about and willing to share because I was out of that part of my career and I'm in an administrative role now. Um, um, I'm what we call a fag, which is a former action guy. So I'm not in the thick of it. I'm, you know, uh, in an office. And so I started telling the stories. The joking about the book uh, kind of drove me to think. I started thinking about, you know, it's funny because we did so much good work. And I saw so many heroic things from the, the, the great people that I worked around. But nobody knows these stories. Nobody even knows some of this stuff happened, you know. And uh, they just live their, their lives fat, dumb, and happy, not realizing that there's all this stuff going on behind the curtain to make that life and make them, you know, have the ability to, to just live the way they live. And so that was the biggest driving factor is I wanted to tell the story and I wanted people to have a true understanding of the things that had gone on 
behind the scenes and all of the sacrifices made um, by people in this world to to fight this problem. And so that was the big driving factor. And uh, I started, I just started writing. Um, I sat down and I said, well, there's only one way to do this and it's to jump in, right? And so I just started writing about operations, which to me almost became like writing reports about the operation. So I knew the operation, I had been through it. So I would just sit there and I would start typing about whichever specific operation I was thinking about at the time. And I just chipped away at it chapter by chapter. And then uh, as I got through it, there were, I had things together and I realized uh, I've got to kind of set the stage for this and and give a little bit of background on who I am and why I know what I know and, and why uh, I'm an expert in this area or that area. So I kind of laid that foundation and uh, that was at the beginning of the book. And then I thought, well, I also have to give them a good understanding of the cartels themselves so that they understand who we were fighting in these operations. So then I go into that piece and I kind of lay out the hierarchy of the cartels, the culture of the cartels, and even some of the, the religious uh, stuff that the cartels, uh, some of the stuff that they idolize or some of the um, religious mixture into the narco culture. I go into uh, some of that and then we get straight into operations. And, and that's just basically telling stories, man, you know, no shit there I was and kind of going going through the story on the operation. Did you find catharsis in writing? I wrote a book, which we just talked about. I literally just mailed to you today. Um, yep. And it was amazing how many things it unlocked. And it wasn't for me so much suppressed, but as you're reliving them and you're getting to to literally put them on paper, there was almost a kind of, uh, you know, sending it off into the wind. Yes, a very cathartic. And I tell people that all the time, that, that, you know, because you know, you wrote a book, um, after you write and publish a book, um, no matter how you do it, if you self-publish or you get published or whatever, it doesn't matter. Once you get that, like you, you have the thing in your hand, right? People are like, oh, I want to write a book. And, you know, how did you feel about it? And I always tell them, man, it was, it was really cathartic just going through those stories again. And, and it's also, it allows you to kind of reminisce too, right? Because there's those people you don't work with anymore. There's some of them have died. Um, they're just all this stuff. And so you get to kind of go through those stories again. And because as you're writing, especially on the operations, there'd be times where I'd be laughing by myself, right? Because I'm like, oh, that was so funny when we did that shit. And so you go through and you relive those memories. And yeah, man, it's it's a, a good, like, it's almost like letting the balloons loose, right? You're just letting those float away. And yep, there goes those stories. But the cool thing is when you, when you put it in a book, um, the cool thing that I've seen is that people connect with different parts of your story. And uh, it, it's it's really weird because you'll have people come up and you know as well as I do from writing a book, there's parts where I'm like, ah, yeah, I kind of know what you're talking about. I kind of remember writing that. But they'll be like, oh, man, you know, when you said this, dude, that connected with me. And, you know, because I did this and I did this and, and it really connected it. And you're like, yeah, man. And, and so that's the coolest part is when when people connect with your a part of your story and then you go through and you relive that all. You get to reminisce and, and they tell you their story. So you kind of relive theirs and you get to relive yours a little bit. And it's just a really cool experience. Beautiful. Yeah. People say to me, yeah, I love chapter 10. I was like, can you remind me what was in chapter 10? Because I, <laughs> exactly. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, beautiful. Well, that is your book. So Interceptors, The Untold Fight Against Mexican Cartels. Where can people find that? Uh, 
two specific places. The the easiest uh, platforms are, are like the Amazons. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's on Apple Books. Um, I also have it on my website. Um, and so if people are interested in just knowing a little bit more about me, you know, my website would be the easiest. It's onetimenation.com. And they can buy the book there. They can click the link to go to where the book is on Amazon and that stuff. And uh, they can also, you know, see a little bit about what we've done. I have a nice little bump video on there that kind of shows some of the action stuff, the cool guy stuff that we did back then, too. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to throw some closing questions at you quickly before I let you go, if that's all right. All right. Let's do it. All right. Well, speaking of books, we talked about your one. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, man. Um, well, I'm probably going to have to go with the classic Sun Tzu, The Art of War, um, because I, I've used that through my career. Uh, and like I said, him and him and Bruce Lee, man, they were both deep. And so, uh, yeah, that that that's probably my go to favorite. And it's it's obviously not a sit down and read the entire book kind of book, but it's almost uh, for those of faith. It's almost like diving into the Bible. Right. You just boom, you open up a page, you start reading some stuff and you're like, yep, that makes complete sense. That's how I need to redirect myself right now. And so I, I use that book to just jump into and and when I need some some good motivation and, and need to push in a different direction. It's amazing. There seems to be a shift in embracing ancient wisdom again. I've talked about this even in the nutrition side and the fitness side. You know, there was this really this kind of bodybuilding and industrialized food movement that happened, you know, the last fifty years. And now people are going, oh, if I just grow it and don't spray it in chemicals i won't die as quickly you know if i just pick things up and walk over and drop them and it's amazing it's the same with the wisdom you know whether it's the greeks or the romans or you know japanese or chinese i mean this 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 ancient wisdom applies now and the only sad thing is you know the whole history repeats itself we've had so many wars and so many right. um you know events in history and yet we still seem to not learn from a lot of them yeah completely agree man and and uh, yeah, it, it is. I would agree that we are we are relying on our our ancient wisdom more and more. So, what about movie and or documentary? Oh man, I'll go with movie. And uh, one of my favorites to watch, and it's one of those that I've watched over and over, is Three Hundred. And just you know, it's it's one of those guy movies that. Just, you know, when when he says this is Sparta and kicks the dude into the hole, you're just like, yeah, you know, you feel like a fellow countryman and you're like, yes, protect our country. Oh, yeah, that's that's one of my go to's. Brilliant. Yeah, I always wonder if the people drinking from that well after started getting food poisoning and <laughs> <laughs> there's a dead dude in our well. Yeah. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Absolutely. Um, there, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, one that uh, one that's a friend and uh, that I that I talk to often about just well-being and all that kind of stuff is Chris Van Sant. And uh, he he was a former uh military guy and did some really cool stuff and, and has uh, some medals to prove that um, and just has a, a great story and is just a great human being. 
Brilliant. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question for I make sure we know where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Decompression for me is typically uh, working out. My wife and I are workout partners. Uh, we work out together. Um, that's our, our alone time and our decompressed time. Um, and second to that is hunting and fishing. Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned the website, onetimenation.com. What about uh, any other areas or social media? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, pretty much solely on Instagram. I have Facebook and that stuff, but I'm most active on Instagram. And on Instagram, my handle is at deputy underscore one time. Beautiful. Well, Matt, I want to say thank you so much. It's I wish the leaders of the world could listen to the voices that have come on the show because so many people from law enforcement have kind of mirrored some of the things you've said that are just proactively, truly going to save lives and make lives safer for our men and women serving in uniform as well. Absolutely. So I want to thank you for your, you know, your courage, your transparency and being so generous with your time today. Oh, and I appreciate uh, coming on and, and the opportunity to talk.